Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to the show, Low Hornbuckle. Mr. Victor, how are you today? Awesome. Well, Lo, you and I are partners in the world of assisted living, and we've known each other a number of years. But for the listeners who don't know, you maybe give a little bit of your backstory, how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah. Um, you know, probably just a quick version is that uh, I started my career in, in sort of retail car industry. So sold cars for 11 or 12 years and eventually uh, went into partnership with uh, the owner of the dealership. And um, that ultimately led through a series of events that are probably take up more than the whole time of the show uh, for me to get into assisted living and, um, and dementia care in particular. We've done um, you know about, uh, about $100 million in, in various ground up projects, something in that sort of wheelhouse and maybe raised about $20 million in equity approximately. So that might give you some, some sense of, of what we've done. Now, in the world of assisted living, of course, when people talk about that, they think typically of the big box facility, multi-story, few hundred beds. And we really rejected that whole concept in favor of more boutique assisted living. And talk a little bit about that and the evolution that you've gone through, at least the first one or two generations of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've really settled on a, on a product class in the sense that my career initially began with one eight-bed home. And so, obviously, it doesn't take much of an imagination to imagine that you know an eight-bed home is not necessarily going to produce enough revenue to give you the scaling that you need, but it's intimate and personal. And the owner, like myself, is involved, as you so often see with people that own a care home then it's just a very different experience. And over time, we acquired a portfolio. We had up, we had up to six individual care homes in the, in the Dallas area. And what we realized pretty quickly was, is that while I am often a critic of large buildings, it's, it's not because I think they don't have a place in the marketplace. It's often they have too much market share. And so I think uh, customers need options and choices in the marketplace because different clients and different families have different needs. You know, something as simple as maybe someone's introverted and they don't want to be around a lot of people is something as simple as to why, you know, smaller options can be available in the marketplace. But the primary thing we do now is build campuses, planned care home communities. So we've taken what we believe to be the best of both worlds. Obviously, there's great things that come with big buildings. They have economies of scale. They have access to commercial financing, the types of people that would want to buy those if you ever want to uh, sell them or do a disposition obviously exist um, on an institutional level. But on the flip side, you get the outcomes, the intimacy, the personalization of a small facility. So our permutation is that we build campuses of care homes. And so you get all the advantages of a big building. For example, when you pull on one of our campuses, um, we're doing uh, meal services in each home and not a global meal service that has to be transported, you know, kind of all over the campus. So that allows us to really have higher quality outcomes. We always kind of say inside say joke, sometimes when we have a, a bad day, what we perceive to be a bad day, it's oftentimes an average day um, in some of the big buildings. So for that reason, we just really wanted to, you know, really take the the best of the both worlds and rob the Kevin O'Leary phrase. We we really feel like we built a better mousetrap, a better approach. Um, we have some operational uniqueness in, inside of our company as well, beyond just the buildings. You know, I know that the show is you know primarily focused on the real estate aspect, but 
the campus of care homes is is our signature product. It's what we intend to uh, continue to develop and build, and we try to have as many things as we can in house. So we want to raise capital in house so that our investors understand operationally what we're trying to do. A lot of our investors have had uh, you know personal experiences with a loved one being in assisted living or memory care, maybe not being happy with the care they received, or there may be somebody that took care of their loved one who had dementia at home and know what that real challenge is. We also try to keep as much of the development in-house as possible. And of course, when possible, construction. And then also, uh, we also operate our own facilities. And that really allows us to avoid some of the things that that we so often see. I mean, you've obviously been a very accomplished developer. Anybody that hasn't been a developer, something that happens in a development process is, is that if you picture a big table, right? And uh, everyone has a seat at the table. Um, You've got the operator, you've got the builder, you've got the developer, maybe you have the investment group. There's so many different people that, 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 that have these different agendas and different opinions. And so when uh, development is ultimately a compromise of those various parties, and depending upon who's the stronger voice, the more persuasive voice, sometimes maybe the investment group dictates certain things to operations, maybe the developer dictates to the builder, whatever the case may be. And what happens sometimes is, is that the operator gets this product that's been um, sort of designed by committee. Yeah, well, um, but you really need to design for the operator, right? Because ultimately, they're the ones that are responsible for the safety of the residents, the sellability of the community. They want to make it a good place to work. And so it's like, yeah, if you spend a little bit more money so the caregivers don't have to bend over so far to do laundry, a lot of people would DC that in the development process if they don't understand how important it is to cater to your staff, for example. Um, So there's a lot of compromises we think that other developments and other developers have to undergo that we're often able to avoid. And when we make a compromise, we do so with the idea that we're overlaying the operational thought process. And so even though we wear multiple hats, or often I wear multiple hats, at the core, I'm always focused on the product that we're going to deliver versus, you know, hey, investor C won't like this, or there's a cheaper way to do this, or or whatever the case may be. The, The focus should be on not cost, but dollars that come back in terms of revenue, in terms of cost. And maybe even beyond that, if you focus on quality first and outcomes and a positive experience, you know, we believe the the money will, will will take care of itself if you're choosing the right marketplaces. One of the things that we did in the design of our very first facility that we worked on together was we scaled back on many of the amenities that you would find in a big box facility. There's no swimming pool, there's no underwater treadmills. There's no pottery classes, none of that stuff, but there's a much better caregiver ratio, which is principally the reason why those folks are there. So rather than a caregiver ratio of 32 to 1 at night, our caregiver ratios are half of what they are in in these big box facilities because we cut a little bit on the real estate. You talk a little bit about how it's not just the design of the building, but actually the design of the entire offering right down to the budget line items. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, I think you got it very close to correct on the caregiver side. Although, all due respect, uh, since you said half of thirty-two to one, uh, that'd be sixteen to one. We're we're far better than that. So we're, right. we're more like we're, we're five point three to one during the day, but but maybe sixteen eight, to one eight at night. night. So really, yeah. you know, if you're if you're using that example, we would be you know four times better better uh, yeah. than than that. So just didn't want the listeners to think we were running sixteen to one at night. But fair right. enough. Um, I guess it's theoretically possible in an emergency. Um, but that's what's always so great about 
about this model is, is that if something really terrible happens and you, you get short staffed, you're now back to where they would have started from had they chosen uh, many of the other facilities. Well, so I think one of the things that we've really done um, that's quite different is what we've really experienced is, is that in my opinion, in a service business, the hardest thing to do is export culture. Right. Meaning uh, you go into a new marketplace. Let's say that you hire someone awesome, but they've only learned at the feet of certain mentors, certain, you know, if they rose up through a company, their ceiling often is the ceiling of the person that trained or coached them before them. And so you have to kind of raise standards. So when you go into a new marketplace, oftentimes our whole job is like explaining what's really actually possible. And so one of the things we're really trying to do is is not have a a strong national presence, but have a very hyper-regional, hyper-local presence because I've found exporting culture is a product of two things. It's it's what you say, but it's also what you do and what you demonstrate to people. So I was having dinner the other day. I kind of gave an example. Imagine if Martin Luther King preached nonviolence all the time. And then, you know, the first time he was on camera, he punches someone. There's a disconnect between speech and action. And so what really causes culture to sink in is when someone says something and then demonstrates that behavior for someone else to see. And enough times that happens, that's really how, in my opinion, culture becomes true. Because if culture could be just handed out in a manual, if you could just give someone a culture manual, then then big companies would have the best culture. And some of them do. You know, some there are tons of companies that have solved the cultural problem in very simple businesses. If I'm selling chicken sandwiches, and we don't have to name them, but if I'm selling chicken sandwiches, I might be able to write a manual and have very clear deal. But when I'm when I'm having to get to the root cause of what a resident needs with what a family needs, at a certain point, it's like, can you really write a process for that? Or do you have to look for people that have the ability to think and to make judgment calls and to understand that um, you could have two residents that have the exact same clinical information, but that the families have totally different expectations of what they want for their loved one. And residents themselves can have different wants and needs and expectations. And so the core of our business is figuring out what the resident wants, figuring out what the family wants, making certain that we can deliver that to them. And so from our perspective, every Sage Oak resident has a unique and personal experience. That just talks a little bit about the operation that we want to do. So what that means is, is that if I need to install culture somewhere, then I need to be a relatively short plane right away. And corporate team needs to be a relatively short plane right away or you know, driving distance because oftentimes... Um, there's a learning curve um, in in culture installation. So that's maybe an example of kind of how we're operationally different. I mean, obviously ratios are are very obvious. Everyone would, would clearly believe that they would want better ratios. But I think the best way to explain exactly the point that you made is, is that, you know, I would say our rooms are are a little bit on the smaller side compared to some other places. And the way I explain it is this, um, if you think we have the best food and and most people do, and you think we have the best care and, and the best ratios, and we communicate better than anybody else. If I also had the largest rooms then I would cost $12,000 a month, $15,000 a month, right? So you've got to figure out what really matters. And you know what I always distill it down to is in all the years, you know, I don't know how many thank you cards I've gotten over the year. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30 cards. You know, I don't know, but to, in my history, no one's ever said, hey, thank you so much for the size of the room you rented my mom or the dad, my dad. It's always about events, moments, memories, times we were there when they couldn't be. And so we really try to focus on what's important. And at Sage Oak, we've really distilled that down to six words, great care, great food, 
great communication. We feel like if you nail those things, then everything else becomes so much less important by comparison. Yeah, sometimes maybe we were supposed to fold the jeans and then we hung them, right? But in the scheme of things, if you're nailing food, you're nailing communication, you're nailing care, that stuff kind of falls to the wayside. So, you know, we try to build communities in, in, in a very efficient way. The first iteration of our floor plan was about 12,000 square feet for 16 residents. We were able to get that down um, to around 8,500 square feet um, for 16 residents, which obviously means that we can deliver a product at a lower cost or higher margin, depending upon your perspective. And that what that allows us to do is to really hone in and focus on the most important things because... At this stage in life, most people don't need a big grandiose room. They need someone to respond quickly when they hit the call button. They need somebody that'll take the time with them in the morning to help them get ready if they're moving a little slower that particular day. They need somebody that knows the types of foods they want to eat and will prepare it hot and fresh for them. The family needs needs someone that can communicate, stay in touch. From our perspective, great communication. It's empathetic but it's also proactive. If you walk in a building and you see there's a water leak, we could have just told all the families there's a water leak. And now now they know that we're on top of it and what the game plan is. So there's just so many examples of how we really think that our industry really doesn't communicate well, for example. And so we really tried to instill that in about what great communication looks like. And what we found is almost every problem can be solved with great communication. If you communicate well, then uh, most problems you know, from our perspective fall to the wayside. So you and I worked together on the first major campus. You're building a replica of that or a near replica of that up in Dallas right now. And I think the grand opening is coming up later this week. What were some of the major learnings, the generational learnings between the facility where you know we were blessed to win an architectural design award and this one that's going to be even better? The floor plans are, are very similar. Um, you know, a lot of our the site plan has a lot of differences and, and, this, and the sites had a little bit different acreage and, and that kind of thing. I, really, some of the things that we learned are probably one of the biggest challenges facing, facing operators today is how to incorporate technology. Our Lake Charles project in Louisiana had a very sort of um, approach to, to technology of, hey, let's do certain things so that we're future-proofed. Um, we don't necessarily have to bet on one thing or the other. Let's put ourselves in a position where if a technology becomes dominant or comes into play, not altogether dissimilar from, you know, when you stay in a hotel that was designed in a certain part of 2000 and has an iPod dock because they thought that iPods were going to be ubiquitous for 20 years. And that lasted like three or four years before the iPhone eventually made that sort of technology that really no one has, no one carries, and they no longer produce anymore. So um, most of the changes in Denton truly have been just the way we interface with technology. We learned some of the lessons of some of the things that kind of come into play. I'm in Lake Charles. Um, you know, frankly, uh, knowing your tech background and you know your your background and microprocessors and things of that nature, you would probably geek out on that stuff. I don't fully understand it, except I know that we've just tried to make the user experience uh, easier. Um, you know, we've changed a few things up. As an example, one of the things that we've done that's kind of unique is is that. You know our camera struck infrastructure. We have real strong, uh, you know, camera uh, support systems uh, throughout the campus. But what we wanted to do was, hey, can we get them all on, you know, one system? So right now, for example, in Lake Charles, we've got a toggle between two different uh, IP addresses to look at cameras. But if you think about a site, sometimes you want to maybe, maybe you're the executive director and you want to look at all the living rooms at the same time. Well, if you have two different you know, IP addresses that you have to use and you have to kind of toggle back and forth, it's not as easy. So we, what we've done is that's an example of how we've kind of improved the technology piece. So if there's a person that's on the site that's not supposed to be, 
we can have a predetermined, you know, package of cameras that go through and we can follow them on the site without having to go back and forth. We want to make it easy on our managers to do certain things. We actually have installed a really sophisticated uh, site security system where we actually can capture license plates um, from people coming on the campus. That's an example of kind of the technological improvements, but the floor plans are are, are very, very similar. Um, most of the stuff that we've done is really at the sort of the technological underpinning level. And then, um, you know, there's a few other things, but but for the most part, the designs are, are very similar. Most of our approaches truly in terms of changes have really been in how we manage people and how we think about people. And then, you know, really making sure that they understand what we're trying to do. And, and, and the other benefit that's happened is that our team in Lake Charles, they were able to visit Dallas and see how the care homes run. But a lot of those lessons don't fully translate because, you know, there's a difference when you have a community that's 10 minutes away by car versus one that's 20 feet away. We've now had the opportunity to have our Denton team visit Lake Charles. So everyone that we've hired for the Denton team, I think we have four, yeah, four dedicated Denton employees right now. They've all been to Lake Charles and kind of seen what their future holds. And that's very powerful. And so, you know, really the, the ability to share tribal knowledge between teams and, and to watch people that have various similar roles in, in different companies communicate, coach, and lead. So, because tribal knowledge has scale too, right? Like you get a certain number of people who really believe in what you're doing they can now help bring up other people to really understand that because at the end of the day, you know, I can, I personally can only install culture into so many people. Once you have a hundred employees or 200 employees or a thousand employees, there's, there's only so much the leader can do to install culture. And what you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to talk it and you've got to walk it with other people who are going to talk it and walk it and then model it down. And, and your hope is, is that eventually the, the frontline staff are walking and talking um, like the leadership. And, and that's ultimately what some of the lessons that we've learned from the, the, the uh, second project. Well, I love that. What's striking about the way you're speaking, and this, of course, is a real estate podcast, and we're both real estate developers, is that we're spending more time and energy focusing on those operational issues, focusing on culture, focusing on building the right team, and much less on, you know, is hardwood 50 cents more per square foot or not? Sure. Well, and I think... Um, I think every developer, every builder probably learned in the last couple of years that how interdependent we all are. You think you're buying a product from a certain company, but really it's a it's a derivative of seven other companies' products put together, right? And so those supply chain issues kind of taught us that relationships and people are really important. You know, the people that navigated supply chain challenges, which is relevant to being a developer and building, uh, being a builder. People that navigate those walls are, in my opinion, are the ones that had the best relationships, right? So people have always been the core of our business. But then maybe take it a step further. If you have great culture as a builder and a developer, you're more likely to get subs and subcontractors that that have good people on that work for them. And so we've all experienced not only you know supply chain challenges, but labor shortages. And so, you know, I think as a as a developer, as a builder, anybody in business that isn't paying attention to the culture, to the people, they're missing the boat because we've reached a point in time where it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't buy your way out of certain problems because certain people don't care about your money. They care about relationships and they'll put people they like, trust, and believe in line before someone who has a lot of money. And so, you know, I think that the thing that that's fun for us 
doing both sides is that you know a lot of the skills that we have in, in leading people to be caregivers or nurses or marketers or executive directors, those are very portable in the world and they're very portable um, as a developer. You know, sometimes people are going to get an argument on a construction project and you can sit down and resolve that dispute. You can kind of strategize. You can see it coming where other people are like not, you know, paying attention to that stuff. So for us, we think culture is a really important part of it. And ultimately nothing in this world gets done in business without people. And then when people are involved, relationships matter, leadership matters, culture matters. And so, yeah, I, I, to your point, I think the, I think that's a lesson that people that don't care about assisted living and memory care, take nothing from the show. It's, it's learn to be a good leader to your subcontractors, learn to be a good leader to your people, learn to form a relationship with your site management. If it's in-house or not in-house, all that stuff pays huge dividends for, for developers and for builders and for, for investors. Well, Lo, I'm excited for the grand opening up in Denton, suburb of North Dallas. If folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously there's kind of two ways to interface with us. If uh, they're interested in the investment side of things, they can visit uh, goodhorncapital.com. I'm assuming you'll have a little link in the show, but goodhorncapital.com. And uh, if they want to learn more about, you know, assisted living and memory care because they have a loved one that has a need in our marketplace, um, they can go to the sayjokecompanies.com. That'll have a, a link to the three different locations, Dallas, Denton, and Lake Charles, and they can navigate their way to the to the relevant website uh, of, of those communities. Fabulous. Well, Lo, love the perspective, uh, love working together, love the relationship. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Lo at goodhorncapital.com. A link will be in the show notes or at the sayjokecompanies.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. 